Good to see you this morning. It's sometimes said that you haven't really understood grace until you've been scandalised by it. Grace, when you really understand it, is not just surprising, it's shocking. And the surprise and the shock are not just initial impressions. It's not just that when I first understood that it's not about what I've done, but all about what Jesus has done, that I was surprised and shocked. It's something that continues because grace is not natural in our world. It's not the way the world works. And for all that we might protest, far too often it's not the way we work either. And like the first disciples, you might not even realise how trapped you are in a different way of thinking until you have been confronted with Jesus' own scandalous explanation of grace. This morning, as we return to Matthew's Gospel, we come across one of the most annoying of Jesus' parables. And yet at the same time, it's one of the most wonderful. It's a parable for disciples prone to think about what they deserve, what they are owed. It's a parable for disciples who are not at all happy that he or she should receive exactly the same from God as I do, who squirm a little when he or she seems to have it much easier than I do and yet the hope that lies before them is exactly the same as mine, who look at the road God has set before others and want to cry out, it's not fair. But precisely because it's not fair, it's wonderful. So let's pray that God might help us to understand this part of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning. We thank you that your word has been given to us, that we might understand you, what you are like, and how we should live in the light of your mercy. Would you take from us this morning everything that distracts us and help us to pay attention to your word, and would you please address us, that we might hear your voice, believe what you have to say, and live as faithful disciples, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we arrive this morning at uh, Matthew chapter 20, uh, but for reasons that will become obvious in a minute, I want to start reading from the last paragraph of chapter 19, from verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have then? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also be seated on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And all who leave houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for the sake of my name, will receive 100-fold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Having agreed with the workers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out around the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you too go into the vineyard, 
and I will give you whatever is right. And they went. And again he went out around the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing and said to them, Why have you stood here all day doing nothing? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the Lord of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the workers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And those from around the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. When those who were first came, they thought that they would receive more. But they too each received a denarius, just the same. And taking it, they grumbled against the householder, saying, Those who were last worked for one hour, and you've made them equal with us, who borne the burden of the day and the heat. And answering, he said to one of them, Friend, I did you no wrong. Did you not agree with me on a denarius? Take what is yours and go. I want to give to the last what I gave to you. Do I not have the right to do as I wish with what's mine? Or is your vision clouded because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. Perhaps the most important word in this entire parable of Jesus is the very first word of verse 1, which is, the observant of you will have noticed, the second word in the original language. It's the word for, or because. For the kingdom of heaven is like, or because the kingdom of heaven is like. It's the most important word because it helps us to identify the main point of the story. For, you see, points backwards. It tells us that what's about to be given is an explanation of what has just come before. Jesus' account of what the kingdom of heaven is like is an explanation of what he's just said. And what has he just said? All who leave houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for the sake of my name will receive 100-fold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And just in case it's a slow morning and you didn't get it, Jesus repeats it at the end of the parable. So the last will be first and the first last. This entire parable explains the great reversal and it shows us why Peter's question, what will we have then, is so wrong. Where you stand, what you've done, what you've left behind or given up, none of that is what matters and none of it determines what lies ahead. And it is the disciples who need to remember that. Not just outsiders, not just the unevangelized, you and I need to remember that. For did you notice Jesus told this parable to Peter and the twelve? So let's look briefly at the parable in its two halves. First, employed by the master, verses 1 to 7. Second, annoyed by the master, verses 8 to 16. Firstly, employed by the master. The first half of the story unfolds rather naturally, in a sense. There's a harvest to be collected and workers are hired to bring it in. But you shouldn't skip over the fact that they are hired. 
They don't just wake up in the morning and decide for themselves that they're going to go into the vineyard and pick grapes. They only work because the Lord of the vineyard has hired them. And he hires them at different stages of the day. A couple of years ago now, I was travelling in Pakistan one morning and at various street corners there were little crowds of men standing around, smoking, laughing. And from time to time they'd be looking around to see if anybody was approaching them. And I asked my hosts, uh, what's it all about? What are they doing? And I was told, they're labourers. They're waiting to be hired. Some might stand there all day and not be approached. Others would be approached, would agree on a price, jump in the truck and be taken off uh, for the job of the day. So the, the scene that Jesus is describing here still happens in many parts of the world. And the point is that the workers in Jesus' parable are entirely dependent upon the approach of the master. There seems to be a certain urgency about getting this harvest in. The master hires a bunch of guys early in the morning, but he still keeps adding others throughout the whole day. He goes out at six in the morning and he hires a workforce. He then goes out again at nine, again at 12 and three in the afternoon. And finally at five, when the day is just about over and you can almost taste quitting time. And he hires more then. You might have noticed that the wages are only mentioned in connection with the first batch of workers, the ones hired at six in the morning. When after they had been working for three hours, he goes out again and hires others, he tells the second batch, I'll give you whatever is right. He promises to act with integrity. He will not cheat anyone. He will not take advantage of them. It does seem strange, doesn't it, that he should still be hiring at five in the afternoon. I mean, why send people into the vineyard then? But he gives that last group of workers a job as well, and it is so very kind of him to do it. At least for them, the whole day would not have been wasted. They might be able to take something home that night. Well, so far, so good. It's not quite a typical day. The, the vineyard owner is clearly a very generous man. He doesn't want to leave men standing on the street corner waiting to be employed all day long. He gives them a chance. He gives them a job. But nothing really to get upset about so far. Nothing scandalous here. Workers employed by the master of a vineyard. But if you've encountered the parables of Jesus before, you'll know that so often the sting is in the tail. A story that seems ordinary at the start, a story that draws you in, and then the shock, the unexpected. And so we move to the second half of the parable, annoyed by the master. Perhaps you might have been wondering how this is all going to work. The Lord of the vineyard has promised to give whatever is right to those who are hired hours after starting time. But exactly what will that look like? Well, you don't have to wait long for an answer. Evening came. It was too dark to keep working in the vineyard. Time to knock off. Time to collect your pay and go home. And right from the get-go, it's clear that something different will be happening to what we might have been expecting. Call them in and pay them the Lord of the Vineyard told his steward. But start with the last and keep working your way toward the first. Now that's odd. Why did he do that? Have you ever thought that uh, if things had only been done the other way around, 
If the steward had only begun with those who'd started work first, back at 6am in the morning, and worked his way down to those who were employed last, there would have been no problem. I mean, the early birds would have taken their salary and gone home and would not have been around when the steward gave those who had scraped in at five in the afternoon the same amount of pay. But this is deliberate. This is at the master's instruction because there's a confrontation that needs to happen, a question that needs to be answered, uh, an attitude that needs to be challenged. The scandalous generosity of the owner is clear the moment the late workers each receive a denarius. It's an extraordinary amount of pay to give someone for an hour's work. Don't know what they expected to be paid, but I doubt it was this. They'd been trying to make the best of a bad day, agreeing to work when there was only an hour to go. It wouldn't be much, but at least it'd be something. At least they wouldn't go home entirely empty-handed. And then each of them received a denarius. What we first got a glimpse of by the roadside when those latecomers were hired is on full view here. Surprising compassion and generosity. The master is like that. He is generous and good and does whatever is right. But that's when it all turns ugly. Because those who had worked all day long had been watching. They'd seen what was given to the latecomers, the one-hour workers, and they expected this meant they would be given more. But they were given the same amount. They too received a denarius. And that's not what they were expecting. They were not happy. I mean, just a few moments before, they would have been quite happy to receive a denarius. Perhaps they were chatting about it as they came in from the vineyard. I'm going to get that denarius and just head home. And as we recognised a moment ago, if they had been paid first, given their denarius and sent on their way, I expect they would have been happy. He's done the right thing by us. He hasn't tried to cheat or defraud us. He gave us what he told us he'd give us. But they'd seen what others were getting. And they compared how each had worked. And they did not think this was right. It's not that they wanted the vine vineyard owner to be impartial. Quite the opposite, actually. They wanted him to discriminate. They wanted a ranking of workers, a scale of remuneration... They wanted consideration of the work done by each person. What galled them was that each of them were treated equally. Those who were last worked for one hour and you have made them equal with us who have borne the burden of the day and the heat. It's that equality, that lack of distinction that is so offensive to them. Now, wait a minute. Does that complaint sound familiar? at all. We deserve more because we have borne the burden of the day and the heat. We have left everything and followed you. What do we get? We've done more so we deserve more. The great achievement of working through the heat of the day and the great achievement of giving up everything to follow Jesus. Can you see what's happened? They measured what they had done against what others had done 
and they believed that they deserved more, they deserved better. They took their eyes off the promise of the master and were instead preoccupied with comparing themselves with others, begrudging what they had received and demanding what they believed they deserved, what they calculated they were owed. And it was more than he had given the others. They demanded what they had been done should be taken into account. And friends, in the heat of the moment or in the dark of the night, have you ever travelled even just a little way down that road? Comparing yourself to others, what you've done, what you've given up, comparing what you've been given with what they've been given. Of course, it's all about grace, I know that. But surely what I've given up counts for something. Surely what I've been through counts for something. Surely these years of faithful ministry count for something. And I'm looking for discrimination in my favour, not equal treatment, even among fellow workers. And what is missing is a deep and rich understanding of grace and the goodness of God. What is missing is the realisation that when it comes to our standing before God, our achievements count for absolutely nothing. Even our best and good achievements, they do not determine the future. Last week, uh, some of us attended the consecration of our new Archbishop and his inauguration. The vision-setting sermon that he delivered that night, What Matters Most, included a line that he's used many times since his election. There is no greater honour than to be a child of God. And he said, it's an honour that I share with each of you. The great Christian theologian, with all his mighty tomes of erudite and eloquent knowledge, cannot plead those achievements before God and expect some special treatment. The just and compassionate Christian ruler, with all his or her contributions to the welfare of the people, cannot plead those things before God. The Christian judge with all her weighty and impeccably just judgments and a lifetime of integrity and incorruptibility, cannot plead these things before God. The Christian doctor who has saved countless lives, the aid worker who's relieved poverty and suffering, the philanthropist who has contributed millions of dollars, none of these things can be held before God as we demand something more or something different from what he has given to our fellow workers at the end of the day. And that is true of the Christian pastor and gospel worker too. You're bearing the burden of the day and the burning heat, O workers. You surrender of everything you might have to follow Jesus, O disciples. It really does not qualify you for different treatment, for better treatment. You cannot demand your rights because of what you've done, because you have none. In the end, we are all labourers in the vineyard and we are only there because he called us. 
I spoke with a friend uh, earlier this week who's going through a very difficult time. It's one of those times when the brokenness of the world presses on you hard, intimately and personally. And what struck me was the question he asked. You see, facing stress and strain and uncertainty and pain on a scale that most of us do not know much about at all, he was not asking why us, but rather why not us? Why would I think that I should be immune from this? Why would I think that I deserve something more, something different from everyone else? I live in the same broken world, but I know the goodness of God. I trust the goodness of God, and I know his goodness is not a reward for anything I've done, but an outpouring of grace on a scale that is simply scandalous. Friend, I did you no wrong, Jesus said. I did, did you not agree with me on a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I want to give to the last what I gave to you. Do I not have the right to do as I wish with what is mine? Or is your vision clouded because I am good? The kingdom of heaven is not a reward for anyone's achievement and its enjoyment is never something I deserve. The kingdom of heaven is all about God's generosity. And the goodness of God is never something we should begrudge others. The dynamic Jesus uncovers at the heart of the early workers' complaint is that their vision is clouded because the master is good. Good beyond everything they could have imagined. Good to others besides them. And the real danger was that Peter and the disciples could share that clouded vision, comparing themselves with others, calculating their devotion, their achievements, and expecting something more than the grace they had been promised. Our Heavenly Father is no one's debtor. He does give whatever is right. But the point is that he gives it. It's his to give, and he gives as the will and decision of one who is utterly and thoroughly good. And so we're brought back to the main point of the parable. So the last will be first, and the first last. The kingdom of heaven is like this. Don't start constructing your own scale of merit, even among disciples. We are all simply forgiven sinners. Some are given more time, some are given less. But that is entirely in the hands of the master. Some have more opportunity and some have less. But that is, that is entirely in the hands of the master. Some appear to have a smooth road and some seem to face one obstacle after another but that is entirely in the hands of the master. We are all simply forgiven sinners, workers in the vineyard, children of God, and he is always good. It's an annoying parable because it cuts across the way the world works and it cuts across the way we can still think, even as Christians, even as Christian workers, expecting to receive more because of what we've done or what we've given up. But don't let your vision be clouded like that. 
because it is the very scandal of God's grace that makes it so wonderful. That even though I have empty hands, even though I come into the vineyard at the end of the day, even though I know what I've left undone or not done perfectly, even though I know how I fail every day, he is good and he acts with grace. Scandalous grace. Amazing grace. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the grace shown to us. We want to thank you too for the grace shown to every other person sitting amongst us and all your people, and we rejoice that you are good. Please help us to hear your word, and where our vision is clouded, please clear it for the glory of your Son. Amen.